you would turn to the fifth proverb, Proverbs chapter 5, tonight. We'll continue a series we left off a couple of weeks ago on the house that God builds. Now, we like to tell our people Saturday night to um, include those who are listening elsewhere. Our Saturday night broadcast is a live broadcast on a satellite network from coast to coast on over 300 radio stations. And a lot of people listen uh, avidly and faithfully every Saturday night to this message. Would you please welcome them as a part of our audience tonight? I have a modified copy of an article in my hands that comes from the Saturday Evening Post. It is entitled, Seven Ages of the Married Cold. And uh, the idea behind this um, installment was the reaction of a husband to his wife during their first seven years of marriage. She gets a cold, he reacts. First year, he says, Sweetie, I'm really worried about this terrible cold my little honey bunny's got. I knew it. No, it may only seem a teensy-weensy thing to you, but with all this flu going around, I just want to play it safe as possible. So I booked you into the hospital so you can have the very best care possible. And don't worry about being alone. I've taken time off work to sit with you. As for the food, well, I'll go out every night and get restaurant meals and bring them back to the hospital for us to eat. That's the first year. Second year, he says, when she gets a cold, Honey, that cough sounds terrible. You go and jump into bed, and I'll call the doctor to come over and check you out. While we wait, I'll make you some of Mom's famous tea with lemon and honey to soothe that sore little throat of yours. Third year, she gets a cold and he says, Gee, darling, I think you better go lie down. A little rest will do you good. Fourth year of their marriage, she gets a cold. He says, Now listen, dear, you've got to be sensible about this cold. How are you ever going to look after the kids and do everything if your cold gets worse? So go straight after dinner. I think you should go straight to bed. By the way, what is for dinner? <laughs> Fifth year, he says to her, why don't you take a couple of aspirin? Sixth year, he says, can't you gargle or something? <laughs> it should be a lot better than having you bark like a seal all night. <laughs> Seventh year, he says, for Pete's sake, stop sneezing. What are you trying to do, give me pneumonia too? <laughs> now obviously, we're dealing with a deteriorating relationship. We're dealing with a marriage that is untended, you might say. Intimacy is eroding. The garden is being left to itself. And weeds are growing up. Now last time we met, in this series, we talked about, in fact, the series or the message title was Weeds of Unfaithfulness in a Garden of Love. And we dealt with the subject of adultery. But tonight we flip that coin and we look at the subject of intimacy within a marriage. Remember Paul, the apostle, in Ephesians 5, said that marriage must be nourished and cherished for it to be strong. Now I've had you turn to Proverbs 5 because it is a chapter that is divided in two. It is the words of a father, Solomon, words that he spoke to his son. You might say they're having the talk. And father is filling in son about the disastrous effects, the ruinous effects 
of a sexually promiscuous life, what it is to flirt with sexual looseness, where it will end up. In fact, look especially at verse 11, where he says to his son concerning falling into this trap, and you mourn at last when your flesh and your body are consumed, and you say, how I have hated instruction, and my heart despised correction. I have not obeyed the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to those who have instructed me. Now listen to this. And I wonder if this could be said of many people who even attend many churches. I was on the verge of total ruin in the midst of the assembly and the congregation. Now beginning in chapter 5, verse 15, in the very same chapter, he flips the coin and he deals with healthy, marital intimacy, which we discover in reading through it, has a lot more to do with sex than with sex. Now, sex is included in it, but it goes far beyond just sexual union to have intimacy in a marriage. The theme, beginning in verse 15, I would say, is how to have a love affair with your spouse. How to have a love affair with your spouse that is ongoing. So let's Look at verse 15, and we'll take it to the rest of the chapter. Drink water, he says to his son, from your own cistern. That is, that well of refreshment given by your wife from the Lord. And running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be your own. And not for strangers with you, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. His own iniquities entrap the wicked man, and he is caught in the cords of his sin. He shall die for lack of instruction. And in the greatness of his folly, he shall go astray. There is an obvious comparison. Can you see it in this chapter? Between illicit sex, sex outside of marriage, and sex within marriage. On one hand, he says, married love is like drinking pure water from a fresh well. Illicit sex, sexual sin, is like drinking polluted water from a sewer. One will refresh, one will ruin. One is like a river, one is like a swamp. One will delight, the other will destroy. Now, beginning in this second half of the chapter, verse 15, there are some building blocks for marital intimacy. I'm going to give you three that come from this chapter, three elements in a marriage that make for intimacy, and we'll define what that is as we go through it. The first is an interpersonal covenant, an interpersonal covenant with each other. The second is mutual enjoyment, and the third is spiritual commitment. We're going to look at those three, and they're all found here. First of all, look at verse 18, and notice the phrase, wife of your youth. Wife of your youth. The Hebrew word for youth means somebody in early life, and the idea that is implied is that there is a lifelong monogamous relationship 
that happened early when they got married and continues for that lifetime. That is, this couple, from youth, has made an interpersonal covenant of marriage with each other. Those are alien words these days. The idea of a lifetime of marriage is foreign to so many. And I know that I'm speaking to some who've had the heartbreak of divorce. But in some cases, it's getting far out of hand. I think one of the most bizarre news stories that came out of the year 2001 was a story about a man who married his television set. Honest story. Mitch Hallen is his name, 42 years of age last year. An Australian who lives in Britain. On Valentine's Day, February 14, 2001, Mitch Hallen married Sony Widescreen. It was an actual ceremony. A priest presided over it. A dozen of his friends attended. He said vows of, I guess, high fidelity. And he placed two matching gold rings on top of the television set in an actual ceremony. A bizarre story. You wonder, why would a guy do that? Well, he explains that he has had two failed marriages and now doesn't trust women. And he said in the article, My television gives me countless hours of pleasure without fussing, fighting, or back chat. That's bizarre, but it's not an isolated incident in that lots of people have given up on the idea of marriage. I just read an article this week. I was on AOL, and it said, New studies have confirmed, like we didn't know this, that people are waiting longer time to get married. And most men don't want to get married for a long, long, long time. They cited two reasons. Rampant divorce, they don't want it. And number two, sex is so easily gotten these days, why get married for it? In one sense, I agree with Mitch Hallen. A relationship with a TV is a whole lot less hassle than a relationship with persons. People are more difficult than television sets. But that's because marriage is a covenant, Mitch, that requires humility, Mitch. It requires flexibility, Mitch. You've got to bend, It's a covenant. I'm not saying that marriage solves problems, all your problems. A monogamous, lifelong relationship is not a panacea of taking care of all of the problems, and some single people actually think it is. It is not. In fact, many problems begin in a marriage. But I am saying that this whole sense of covenant is missing, of this marriage being a covenant between two people. But that is where intimacy begins, with a sense of, I am making a covenant with you. And of course, the trend today is to test the waters first, live together first, get intimate first, see if we're compatible, and then get married. In fact, since 1970, the percentage of Americans living together before marriage has gone up 400%. That's significant, 400% in the last 30 years. But it backfires. What people don't understand is they say, we're going to test the waters, we're not going to have a covenant, we're just going to see if we're okay, but enjoy this intimacy, is that they never really achieve intimacy. Well, they have sex, 
but they fail to become truly vulnerable and loved. Two sociologists in a recent study said people living together first before marriage are more apt to fail in their marriage than couples who move in together after they have said their vows. They said in the article, quote, Studies show, based on 50 years of data, that couples who live together before marriage have a 50% greater chance of divorce than those who don't. Those who cohabit also have less satisfying and more unstable marriages. Why? Researchers have found that those who have lived together later regretted having violated their moral standards and felt a loss of personal freedom to exit out the back door. Furthermore, and in keeping with the theme of marital bonding, they have, listen to this, they have stolen a level of intimacy that is not warranted at that point, nor has it been validated by the degree of commitment to one another. That's an interesting phrase the researchers said. They have stolen a level of intimacy. It's interesting in light of, well, just turn a couple pages to the right. Look at Proverbs 9. The words of the same father to his sons. Verse 13. A foolish woman is clamorous. She is simple and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house on a seat by the highest places of the city to call those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. As for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, Stolen water is sweet. And bread eaten in secret is pleasant, but he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of hell. That is, to steal that level of intimacy before vows are made, a covenant is established, undermines the very nature of true intimacy. And research points that out. So the first step is interpersonal covenant. Second, mutual enjoyment. Mutual enjoyment. I draw your attention back to verse 18. He says very beautifully, poetically, metaphorically, let your fountain be blessed. And notice this word, rejoice with the wife of your youth. I looked that word up. Samach is the Hebrew word. It is a word that means literally in the root to brighten up. To brighten up. And it means to cheer up, to be glad, or to be joyful. Enjoy each other is the idea. It's the same words that Solomon, same author, said in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 9, when he writes, Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your life. Marriage is to be enjoyable. You are to live joyfully. How many people do you know that do that? I know a lot of people who live routinely, who live insipidly, who live enduringly, who live grimacingly with their spouse. But how many really enjoy each other for a lifetime? So mutual enjoyment is something else that builds intimacy. Now I have outlined for you in your uh, bulletin four levels of this just because of the time that we have. The first and most obvious is to enjoy each other's company. Now that sounds very elementary, doesn't it? 
And you know, a couple, when they first meet, when they're first dating, this is not a problem. To enjoy each other's company, not an issue. Wild horses can't drag them apart. They want to be together with each other all the time. But as time goes on, after the vows are said, they've discovered each other. And sometimes that thrill of discovery is gone because they've discovered things like annoying habits, idiosyncrasies. I didn't know you snored, etc. You mean you put the toilet paper going up, not down? All of those silly little things. That's why Benjamin Franklin wisely said, keep your eyes wide open before marriage and half shut afterwards. <laughs> Good advice. See, most successful marriages, the most successful marriages that I have ever seen are those who continue to bond with each other by investing time spent with each other. Enjoying each other's company. Now, though the, the context here, the, the immediate context of the passage, is uh, sexual bliss within a marriage, understand, and women understand this, that it begins a lot earlier than 10 p.m. Right? One person said, if you want to have an energized sex life in marriage, try a little tenderness the other 23 and a half hours of the day. It is time spent with each other. Intimacy begins with harmony between a couple as they spend time with each other. Don't lose touch. You were really in touch when you first dated and were first married. Don't lose touch with each other. Continue to communicate with each other. It will get harder to do as life gets busier and busier. So you must be committed to communication. And that's a challenge. It's a challenge because... According to research, and I shared it with you even in this series, that the average female uses up about 25,000 words a day, the average male only 10,000. And if he's been at work all day and 9,500 of those are used up at work, he doesn't have much, or at least he doesn't feel like he has much, and he wants to shut down in the evening. And so that time can often be strained with each other. But I'm speaking about more than words. Being with each other, you don't have to always talk. You can, you can read each other's body language, and it ought to be good body language. You can listen to each other's heart. A man went to a counselor. His marriage was sort of rocky, and he said, what do I need to do here? He said, go home and learn to listen to your wife. It was good advice. He went home, came back in a month. He said, I've learned to listen to every word my wife has said. Counselor said, that's a good start. Now go and learn to listen to what she doesn't say as well as what she does say. Listen to her heart. One wife wrote a note to her husband expressing this desire that she had and she said, please come, take my hand. Let's walk. Give me you. Eyes that say hi, glances that say I care, handholds that let me know you were only teasing, hugs saying thank you for being you, Kisses that gently want me, then love that says, I'll be here tomorrow and every day hereafter. Then second, we ought to enjoy each other emotionally. After all, the word rejoicing speaks of an emotion. Joy is an emotion. Enjoy each other emotionally. Now, as you know, there are emotional differences. 
between men and women. Between one person and another person. Let's be frank. All of us are built differently to some extent. Understanding that helps. It helps. Instead of running around your whole life going, she's so different from me. Yeah. That's probably why you were attracted to her in the beginning. Opposites often do attract. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter's great advice to husbands is, Husbands, dwell with your wives with understanding. Understand those differences. She may be talkative, he may be the silent type. Or, he may be talkative, she may be the silent type. She may be the neat freak, he may be a slob. Or, very rarely, he may be neat, she may be the slob. You know, we're different. And we have to let those differences not separate us, but it's part of that thrill of discovery, building bridges, not walls. Or we become like that person, if you remember back in that 1965 Paul Simon song when he wrote, I've built walls, a fortress deep and mighty that none may penetrate. I have no need of friendship. Friendship causes pain. It's laughter and loving I disdain. I am a rock. I am an island. But it gets awfully lonely on that rock and that island. And so sharing fears, sharing dreams, sharing feelings and emotions are important. It builds emotional intimacy. By the way, men to a woman, that's what romance is. Romance is more than just, hey baby, you look really good tonight. It's a sense of security that is built by emotional intimacy. There was a very insensitive husband who eventually woke up because his wife was feeling very low about their relationship, so he took her to a counselor. And the counselor sat back. He was very wise and just asked them questions and had them both respond. And he listened to how they both interacted with each other. After a while, the counselor said, I think I see the problem. It's quite simple. Stood up, walked across the room, took the woman by the hand, pulled her up, took her in his arms, looked gently in her eyes and said, you are a beautiful, beautiful woman. And gave her a gentle kiss on the cheek. And (laughs) she blushed, but she really liked that. She beamed with embarrassment. And he turned to the husband and he said, see, it's simple. That's all that she needs. And the husband says, great, I'll bring her in Mondays and Wednesdays. (laughs) He didn't cop a clue. No, that's your role. (laughs) Enjoy each other emotionally. Third is to enjoy each other spiritually. It would seem obvious for a believer, wouldn't it? But it's so often missing in a Christian marriage to enjoy each other's spirituality. But that's a a theme in this chapter. Verse 18, he says, be blessed. That's a biblical term, isn't it? The idea inferred is that God has given you a blessing. You're living with that knowledge. In verse 21, he mentions the eyes of the Lord. There's a spiritual dimension that must be present enjoying each other's insight into the relationship with God. 
After all, we covered Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her that He might sanctify and cleanse her with washing of water by the Word. Share the Word with her. Insights you have from the Scripture, share them together. Get into the Word together. Pray together. My wife has tremendous insight into Scripture. In fact, many times if I bring up a, 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 a Scripture, and I'll listen to how she spins it or interprets it, and I think, what? I never saw that. So I'll like rip it off and use it. <laughs> it's so good. And keeping spirituality, by the way, in a marriage pays off. Listen to this. You know this already. The average American divorce rate is one in two. Fifty percent of all marriages will end up divorced. But those who attend church regularly, together, one in fifty. One in two, one in fifty. Whereas those with an active prayer life, the divorce rate is one in one thousand one hundred and five. It pays off. Treat your wife as God's daughter, your sister in Christ. Treat your husband like God's child, his son. I read a funny little quip that said, If a man has enough horse sense to treat his wife like a thoroughbred, she'll never turn into a nag. (laughs) And fourth, enjoy each other sexually. Now, It doesn't take a brain surgeon or a rocket scientist to figure out that the main thrust of what we read here in this chapter has to deal with that. He's very honest and open and frank about enjoying each other sexually. Verse 19, as a loving deer and as a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. For why should you, my son, be enraptured with an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? See the word satisfy? It means to be satiated or filled to the full. And then when he uses the word enraptured with her love, literally, you might have it in your margin even. Literally, it means be intoxicated. I looked it up again. It means to reel, to swerve. I mean, you are into this with this person, your spouse. Now, why am I I being so graphic? First of all, it's in the text. And I want you to know, if you think God is some stuffy old prude when it comes to sexuality, you got the wrong God. C.S. Lewis said, Pleasure is God's invention, not the devil's. And when marriage is what God intended it to be, the love within a relationship is to be rapturous. It's not, sex is not just for the propagation of the human race. It's more than merely functional. It is to be enjoyed. God made them male and female, The Bible says they were both naked and not ashamed. Neither should you be. Although, and I had read this before my marriage. I went through this naked and not ashamed. Yes, and read this Psalms and I'm getting all psyched up. On my honeymoon, Lenya's grandfather had connections with this set of hotels. So he got us the honeymoon suite at this hotel in Ventura, California. So we drove up after the wedding We walked into this. We're already this young, embarrassed couple. We walk in, and the carpet is pink. (laughs) Red velvet wallpaper all the way around. Cherubs, little statues, cherubs. (laughs) And a huge mirror over the bed. (laughs) 
And I looked at this scripture, I thought, I, I can't do this. <laughs> Wasn't a real good start for a young couple trying to get over their nervousness. But the Bible talks about enjoying each other sexually. In fact, Hebrews 13 verse 4 says, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed, that is the marriage bed, is undefiled. That is, marriage is a sacred thing to be enjoyed. You know, just because the Bible condemns illicit sex, some people think it condemns all sexual activity. No, it doesn't. What the Bible condemns is this gift, fire, sexual passion, burning outside of the fireplace that is outside of marriage. But inside the fireplace, it's to burn hot and passionately for a lifetime of pleasure together. I want you to turn with me to a, a passage of Scripture that is, is usually often not even commented on in a church, but it's in the Bible. Let's look at it. Song of Solomon, chapter 5. Now, I'm having you turn there. Just turn right to it says Song of Solomon, chapter 5. This is uh, Solomon. He writes this as well as Proverbs, and he's writing about his own relationship. This marriage to a beautiful, unsophisticated country girl from the northern parts of the country and they communicate to each other in a beautiful, poetic way. In chapter 5, I take you down to verse 10. This woman, the Shulamite, describes her groom, her husband. My beloved is white and ruddy, chief among 10,000. His head is like the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the rivers of the waters, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are like a bed of spices, banks of scented herbs. His lips are lilies dripping liquid myrrh. His hands are like rods of gold set with beryl. His body is carved ivory and laid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of fine gold. His countenance is like Lebanon, excellence as cedars. His mouth is most sweet, yes, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Now, look over chapter 7. This is... Solomon's description of his bride. Now, I just want to inform you before we read this that you're reading the Bible, okay? This is in the Scripture. Verse 1, chapter 7. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O prince's daughter! The curves of your thighs are like jewels. The work of the hands of a skillful workman, your navel is a rounded goblet. It lacks no blended beverage. Your waist is a heap of wheat set about... These are all compliments in those days, by the way. You're saying, man, she's going to feel really bad after this. No, it was, it was all good. Set about with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is an ivory tower. Your eyes are like the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Rabin. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon. I don't know about that one. Which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel, and the hair of your head is like purple, a king held captive by your tresses. How fair and how pleasant are you, O love, with your delights. This stature of yours is like a palm tree, and your breasts like its clusters. I said, I will go up to the palm tree. I will take hold of its branches. Now let your breasts be like clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and the roof of your mouth the best wine. Husbands, wives, do you ever talk to each other like that? 
Who knows what might happen if you did? (laughs) There it is right there in the Scripture. Here's the point. God made every part of your body and gave you a nervous system to enjoy it. And God said it is good when He made man and woman, right? And if God said it's good, who are we to say it's bad? It's not. It's good. Same thing God reminded Peter of in the book of Acts when he said, What God has cleansed, we should not call unclean. And so we are to enjoy each other in all of these capacities. The third, and we'll close with this, the third building block of intimacy after this covenant and enjoyment is spiritual commitment. Verse 21 of our text brings God into the picture, you might say brings God into the marital bedroom when Solomon tells his son, for the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. His own iniquities entrap the wicked man. He is caught in the cords of his sin. He shall die for lack of instruction and in the greatness of his folly he shall go astray. Again, playing on that comparison. Here's the point. God sees everything. God knows everything about you. Talk about intimacy. Imagine being with someone who knows your every thought. And the idea is that the best way to live in life, and in this context, in marriage, is living under that awareness that God knows everything and God sees everything. It's living with accountability to God. I'm committed to being accountable to God. I'm committed to receiving God's instruction. And it's that attitude that will keep you pure in a marriage and keep your marriage strong. When you realize, I said my vows to this woman, I said my vows to this man, I made a covenant with him, I made a covenant with her in the sight of God, in the sight of God, that my marriage is a total irrevocable commitment before God to another person. Now just think briefly about your wedding, those of you who are married. Your wedding wasn't some vague, uncertain thing. You didn't just wake up and go, I'm married. How'd that happen? It was very deliberate, very thought out. You asked a question, you got an answer, you planned, you invited, you got married. You made a covenant. You said vows to each other. The preacher probably asks you something like, will you have your spouse, this person, to be your God-given wife in a covenant of marriage? Will you love her or him, honor her, forsaking all others, live only unto her according to God's holy ordinance? To which you replied, I do, or I will. Question, did God hear you say that? Oh, you bet he did. You made a promise before God. And you must live all of your life with that umbrella awareness that God sees everything and holds me accountable. What are you supposed to do with a vow to God? The Bible says you're to keep it over and over again. It says that. Here's the scripture, Ecclesiastes 5. I chose that because Solomon again wrote it. When you make a promise to God, don't delay in following through, for God takes no pleasure in fools. Keep all of the promises you made to Him. So live your married life with the awareness of a holy God. Did you know that spiritually minded people have the most satisfying marriages? 
I alluded to that a little bit earlier. They have the most satisfying relationships, the non-Christians. Do you realize that intimacy and sexual gratification for spiritual people is way higher than those who are not? Two researchers from Family Life Seminars conclude that Christians generally experience a higher degree of sexual enjoyment than non-Christians. Follow-up to that, Red Book Magazine, Secular Magazine, published its Sexual Pleasure Survey showing the preferences of 100,000 women. Quote, they said, Sexual gratification is related significantly to religious belief. With notable consistency, the greater the intensity of a woman's religious conviction, the likelier she is to be highly satisfied with the sexual pleasures of marriage. I want to give a summary statement to this whole message. Here it is. Don't leave God out of your marriage because it's His marriage too. God brings a couple together. God's a part of that covenant and that relationship. And you can't be a good husband or a good wife in a Christian marriage until you're a good Christian. You realize that God is sovereign and God is a part of it. See, marriage is not the end. Okay, it's over. Said my vows. It's just the beginning. And it's the beginning of a journey toward intimacy where you feel vulnerable before another person without the fear of being hurt or rejected. And how is that done? By interpersonal covenant, by mutual enjoyment in all of those four areas, and then finally by spiritual commitment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's pretty consistent whether we're in the book of Proverbs or Ephesians or Genesis. It doesn't matter which book we pick. There's a, an incredible consistency woven into the Scripture. These principles are all the same. They're all the same. Marriage relationship is something you invented and you gave as a gift to human, human beings, to us, to enjoy. You want our lives to be full and rich. Lord, I pray that as we, we um, grade ourselves, that's the only one that should be in our purview of grading at this point is our own lives our own marriages. As we grade our marriages in light of what we learned tonight, covenant, enjoyment, commitment. I pray that we might be honest and then that there might be changes that occur so that our lives would be full, would be blessed with the wives of our youth, the husbands of our youth, Lord, I pray that rather than copping out and going to the TV, we would dare to work through issues, communication, so that the end might be a greater level of intimacy and satisfaction. You want that. That's your will. It begins with that healthy fear of the Lord. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. The ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord. You're in every place. Lord, I pray that for us, for this fellowship. Lord, I pray that if there is spiritual commitment that is lacking, that that would be taken care of tonight.
that some would say yes to Jesus. In his name we ask, amen.